0: Guten Tag, meine Fellow Students. Guten Tag. Ich bin Dr. von Schweinheimer. Herr Doctor, good to see you. You sit in, bitte. Alle sit, sit. sit sit. All sit. Yeah. I am guest teacher for you today. My name is Dr. von Schweinheimer. So glad to be with you today. We're going to start our new year of learning by studying a demonstration about catalysts. Yeah, here's what we're going to do. How many of you have ever used hydrogen peroxide? You've used hydrogen here, Dallas women use it on their hair. The um, uh, hydrogen peroxide, very naturally on its own, it breaks down into water and oxygen. <laughs> It breaks down very slowly on its own. Uh, hydrogen peroxide here, you can see we put four ounces into uh, in a flask and I added some, uh, some uh, soap, some blue color, so you could see it now. Tell me, can you see the, the uh, breakdown turning into uh, water and oxygen? Can you see the breakdown? Nein! You can see nothing! Because it's so slow. It's too slow. So here's what we did. Let me show you. We did this for you so you could see it. We added a catalyst, Yeah, some iodide ions, And let's see what they do to the slow reaction of the breakdown. Oh, my goodness, it's stupendous, look at that, it's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing, it's the favorite science fair experiment of every fourth grade child ever, just add volcano, it's amazing. Yeah, they are good, it's excellent stuff. Oh, my goodness, look at it. Yeah, there will be a quiz later, pay attention, yeah, they're good. Now, in summary, here is what occurred. What occurred? Oh, it is so amazing. It's called the elephant's toothpaste, by the way. Don't try this at home. Don't use the toothpaste. Um, Here's what occurred. We added iodide ions, aqueous, to speed up the reaction. The catalyst sped things up so fast that the oxygen literally bubbled out of the container, right? But this is important. Remember this. The iodide, the catalyst, wasn't affected at all. It settled down in the bottom. You couldn't see it for all the foam, but it settled as just liquid iodide in the bottom. Everything else was impacted. Did you see the steam? Did you see the steam? That's because our exothermic reaction was so powerful that some of the water was actually evaporated into steam. It was amazing. Okay, now I, I must say cheers. I turn things over to my partner, Dr. Broderick. He will explain what this means for you. Thank you so much. I will see you later. Good to see you. And I... Actually, would like to get out of this little jacket. It is too small for me. Here, let me help you. Okay, thank you. That's great. That's super. Okay, thanks. Hey guys, good to see you. So glad to be with you. All right, let's review. Let's review what just happened. Uh, the reaction was happening, right? It was happening, but very, very slowly. Hydrogen peroxide, two H two O two, was breaking into into water and oxygen. But the process was so slow that it was invisible. It was, uh, it was almost unmeasurable. Then the doctor added the catalyst and poof, everything, everything then got humming. The essentials of life, in fact, were produced. Did you notice that? Oxygen and water, the essentials of life. While the catalyst itself was unaffected. That's what God intends for us. That's what He intends for you and for me and for every one of His people. He wants us to be catalysts. You see, there is good that the Lord is doing all around us. He is at work invisibly, but He likes to add catalysts to speed things up so the world around us receives the necessary essentials for life. We Christians are expected to use our catalytic powers for good to help positive things bubble up all around us. And that's why you and I are embarking on a brand new Bible study today. We're going to learn from one of the greatest catalytic converters of all time. A guy named Nehemiah. Turn your Bible, if you would, to the book of Nehemiah. And while you're turning, I'll explain the first headline there in your notes. Um, You got a worship guide when you came in. Open it up and look inside. On the left-hand side, you see this headline, Judah's Situation. Here's the background uh, of Judah, the nation of Judah, as we get to the book of Nehemiah. About 100 years before Nehemiah begins, the Babylonian armies had smashed Jerusalem, uh, especially during their second conquest. That one came after Judah's foolish rebellion, about which Yahweh warned them. Now, during that destruction, the rebellious Jews suffered three deportations to Babylon. You you can see them each summarized on this very crude diagram I've done up here. You have the Texas two-step, right? Well, they had the Babylonian three-step, okay? The Babylonian three-step, three different deportations to Babylon, and we're just going to label them by the the authors who wrote about them. So the first one we learn about from Daniel, a very small group, mainly nobles who were deported. Uh, Then Ezekiel, a much larger group. Uh, And then the third one came 586 B.C. Jeremiah didn't go, but he's the one who described it for us, writing uh, his book, Jeremiah and Lamentations. Uh, they, they, after that third deportation, the one described by Jeremiah, the land of Judah was left just desolate. I, I don't really even have words to describe it. Let me just say this. The livelihood of the few people left in Judah seems to have been so strained that archaeologists can find almost no record of them except in these very small little villages that they, that they formed. They were apparently struggling very, very much just with the essentials of life. Now, 70 years later, Zerubbabel led the first return after the miraculous fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Things came about just as Isaiah had foretold. Medo-Persia conquered Babylon, the Edict of Cyrus, and that, that's one of the most important Documents ever written, the Edict of Cyrus allowed the Jews to return home. So the first group came back under Zerubbabel about 536 BC. The second group, quite a bit later, under Ezra 458, and then Nehemiah came. The, what we're going to study to rebuild the wall in the third one. If you want a tidier diagram of that return from captivity, uh, look in your notes. I stole Chuck Swindoll's um, chart. I really liked it. I stole it without his permission, and I put it in your notes. Uh, he would give permission. It's no problem. So. Uh, he the, the chart splits in 931 BC over taxation they, the Israel split into the northern kingdom we call Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah northern kingdom was conquered by Assyria. They went up here. They never never returned, and their fate is still. They, They just absorbed into that culture. They did not become American Indians and walk across a land bridge. It's ridiculous. Okay, so they're gone. southern kingdom of Judah lasted longer. Then we have the invasion by Babylon that we described, the three deportations, and then Chuck lists for you the three returns. Zerubbabel 536, Ezra 457, Nehemiah 444. And here's the route that Nehemiah took to come back from Susa, Back to Jerusalem. Now, when they returned, they found their homeland besieged, beleaguered, and considerably smaller. Ju- Judah was surrounded by antagonistic neighbors to whom that edict of Cyrus came as a profound disappointment. In particular, uh, Phoenicians had been granted the coastal plain. Uh, A half-breed people that we later call Samaritans had taken over the old lands of Israel. And another half-breed people called the Idumeans had taken over all the land south of Hebron. If a modern example helps you visualize the situation in Nehemiah, it is not too far of a stretch to see parallels with the creation of the modern state of Israel. Because in, in each situation, the Jews are surrounded by enemies who want to destroy them. Now, turn in your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 9, okay? I know that's a funny place to start a study, but you'll see why in a moment. We're going to bounce around in the book a bit today to make sure we grasp the big picture about Nehemiah. So let's start with a summary of the Jews' story in their own words. So here's, here's their own summary of their history. Go to chapter 9, verse thirty. verse 30. You, Yahweh, were patient with them, our forefathers, for many years, and your spirit warned them through your prophets, but they would not listen. Therefore, you handed them over to the surrounding people. Stop there for just a moment. One of my pulpit team members um, sent me an excellent note about verse 30. It was so profound, I simply must share it with you. Here's what Martin wrote. He wrote me and said, It is very interesting that often God's chosen means of rebuke is to remove His hand of protection and allow us to run sin's course. In Romans chapter 1 in the New Testament, Paul talks about God giving rebellious people over to their sins. The net effect is we experience the reality of life outside God's care, and it isn't pretty. The worst punishment that could come to us is not active disciplining, but rather God pulling back and allowing us to indulge in our sin and experience life apart from Him. Close quote. You have probably experienced that, haven't you? God letting you fall on your face in idiotic sin? So have I. It's painful. And that pain is often the catalyst God uses to wake us up and draw us to Him. Awakened, we can then start using our powers for good. We can start becoming positive catalysts in the world. And our text turns to that next. Keep reading. Go to verse uh, verse 31. However, in your abundant compassion, you did not destroy them or abandon them, for you were a gracious and compassionate God. So now, our God, the great, mighty, and awe-inspiring God who keeps His gracious covenant, do not view lightly all the hardships that have afflicted us, our kings and leaders, our priests and prophets, our ancestors, and all your people from the days of the Assyrian kings until today. You are righteous concerning all that has come on us because you've acted faithfully while we've acted wickedly. Our kings, leaders, priests, and ancestors did not obey your law or listen to your commands and warnings you gave them. When they were in their kingdom, with your abundant goodness that you gave them, and in the spacious and fertile land you set before them, they would not serve you or turn from their wicked ways. Here we are today, slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so that they could enjoy its fruit and its goodness. Here we are, slaves in it. Its abundant harvest goes to kings you've set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and our livestock as they please. We are in great distress. Stop there. Those kings they mention are the rulers of the Persian Empire. The Medo-Persians, as we said, inherited Judah from Babylon just as Isaiah had predicted. Now, let me share six quick notes to make sure we understand Judah's situation under those Gentile kings. I want to give you six notes about what life is like in the Persian Empire. Okay. First note, the empire was marked by sexual perversity. I've said this before, I think the best summary of life in Persia would be the Latin phrase, and Latin didn't really exist yet, but the Latin phrase, e pluribus perversum unum, unity through many equally accepted perversities. In Persia, the, the only things that were, that were deemed uh, uh, wrong were that which is normal. Normal, healthy life, especially marriage, was deemed perverse. Everything else was, of course, fine. Number two, even when there was marriage, it was very often unhealthy. You guys know God calls men and women into an equal and mutually nurturing relationship that is centered on biblical roles and responses, but the empire wasn't like that. Marriage in the Persian empire was marked by pagan parasitism in relationships. Number three, the Persian empire was a world of committed racism. (laughs) Everything was about race. Number four, Humans were exalted even above their gods, especially above Yahweh. By the way, this anthropocentrism wasn't just reserved for Persia. It was fairly worldwide at the time. The Greeks, who were the great thorn in Persia's side, they had the same kind of exaltation of humanity. Number five, principle, that is money, triumphed over principles. Possibly even more than is normal in human history. And that's saying something, is it not? Number six. At least among the ruling classes, Persia was a world of fragile self-aggrandizement and entitlement. Um, This was the culture that was lording over Judah. This is what they had to live with. Sexual perversity, parasitic relations, committed racism, human-centeredness, money-ruling, entitlement attitude. Of course, we read that list and we think, thank goodness none of that fits the era in which we live. More on that in a moment. The particular burdens for the returned Jews, I think are captured really, really well by Professor Joyce Baldwin, uh, I like this quote so much, I put it in your notes. Look at the top of the right side of your notes. Uh, Dr. Baldwin says this, They, the Jews in Jerusalem, were answerable to officials in Samaria who were out of sympathy with them, taxed them beyond their income, and made exorbitant personal demands upon them. Under continual threat of being accused to the central government, as would later happen during the reigns of Ahasuerus and Artaxerxes, and having no means of self-defense, the Jews must have keenly felt their helplessness. Now, this last sentence, I think, is genius. This applies This applies to all human cultures, not just Jerusalem at that time. Look at what she says. Once hopes for the future faded, morale became low, and religious and moral laxity prevailed. So well said. So, with all that in mind, turn back to Nehemiah chapter 1 and let's read the very start of the book. Nehemiah chapter 1, let's read verses 1 through 4. 1 through 4 of Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. During the month of Kislev in the 20th year, when I was in the fortress city of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah. And I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. They said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned down. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. In your notes, we call this Nehemiah's response. Mm. We're going to examine this passage more fully in a few days, but but for now, let's just note a couple of features. just want to show you two features. These traits are hallmarks of Nehemiah. They're things we're going to see throughout his story. First, notice his inquisitiveness. This is a man who seeks out questions. He researches. Most interesting for our age, he seeks even bad news. He seeks out even information that is not going to make him feel better. I trust you realize that this is not the norm for Americans in our current era, right? Let me show you a great summary. This is from communications researcher uh, Sylvia Knobloch-Westerwick of Ohio State University. She says this, News readers gorge on media messages that fit their pre-existing views rather than graze on a wider range of perspectives. In other words, they consume that with which they agree. I had to fix her grammar. It's in communications research, for heaven's sake. Anyway, um, (laughs) Anyway, I suggest we become less like that and more like Nehemiah. Let's always investigate and let's just go where the truth takes us instead of simply gorging on our own preconceptions. This, however, requires confidence. This is going to be counterintuitive. I want you to listen carefully. Current research indicates that confidence is the most important trait to possess if one is going to be inquisitive. That's why Dr. Westerwick was surprised to discover this nugget in her research. This really surprised her. She found this. People with stronger party affiliation, conservative political views, and greater interest in politics prove more likely to investigate articles with opposing views. Now, she was curious why this same thing wasn't seen among her more liberal students. So she did a great deal of research. Let me just give you the summary of it. She concluded this individual confidence and certainty play a role in what people choose to read the more confident in what they know those more confident in what they know investigate more broadly close quote now earthly politics are only temporary i frankly could not care less about them but this principle applies to all of life including eternal matters and she is correct investigation is carried out by the confident this goofy world This goofy world is going to tell you that only the open-minded person can learn, that once a person knows any absolute truth, they stop learning, they stop investigating. Only Siths believe in absolutes, right? That's what you're going to be told. But the opposite is actually what's true. It is the person confident in absolute truth that is freed to truly investigate. Nehemiah knows Yahweh. He knows prophecy. He knows politics very well, as we're going to see, and that knowing makes him confident enough to question widely. The other thing we note, second thing we note, is Nehemiah's prayerfulness. It's the other part of his response. It is very important to learn how his first reaction to bad news is to pray. It's a very, deep, In fact, it's a very deep and introspective prayer. Prayer positions Nehemiah with Yahweh, preparing him to be a great catalyst. And it is the same for us. For example... Outside of this building, I spend a lot of time teaching young adults, and I am very bullish on this generation, especially the Christians. I like the millennials, and I'm pretty sick of seeing them picked on all the time. But there is one thing, okay, I have to mention one thing that drives me bonkers about the youngest generation right now that are adults. Nearly every young person I meet tells me, I want to change the world. Great. But when I ask them about their plans, it turns out they have spent almost no time in prayer. Worse, they have spent very little time in confession and introspective prayer. And that's why these wonderful people are having less impact than they should. To be real catalysts like Nehemiah, they and we need to pray. Pray first. Here's an added bonus. Prayer also prepares those around you for change as well. Do you know your prayer also convicts the people around you? For example, purely hypothetical situation. But let's just suppose that you're out on a double date with your wife and another pastor and his wife, okay? And you're out on a double date, and this other pastor, who hypothetically his name might be Pete, he um, he goes out while you're all inside, and he moves his car, okay, from where you h- he had parked when you all came. And then when you finish supper, he goes out and pretends that his car was stolen. <laughs> okay, just strange hypothetical situation. We just suppose this happens. And your immediate reaction is to pray. You grab everybody's hand, you say, we got to pray right now. And you start praying, and you pray for the thief, and you pray for yourself, and you pray about all the thievish nasty things in your own soul, and you have a deep introspective prayer, and you ask God to make it better. Here's what happens. While you're praying, this hypothetical pastor is so convicted that he takes the keys out of his pocket, and he holds them up, and he waits till you're done. When you say amen, he says, I I did it as a prank. I moved the car. Simply, hypothetical situation. (laughs) Pray first. Now, let's examine Judah's response. We're going to see it in two aspects. First, consider their response physically. Turn over to chapter 2 where Nehemiah travels to Jerusalem and he addresses the Jewish leaders there. Chapter 2, we'll study all this later in order. Just go to chapter 2, verse 17 right now. So I, Nehemiah, said to them, the people in Jerusalem, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned down. Come, let's rebuild Jerusalem's wall so that we will no longer be a disgrace. I told them how the gracious hand of my God had been on me and what the king had said to me. They said, let's start rebuilding. And they were encouraged to do this good work. First, let's consider their response physically. Once they hear Nehemiah, the people say, let's do it. Let's get to work. Let's start!" How great is that? And, you know, it's amazing how often this occurs. Have you, have you noticed this? It's incredible. All the times we see this, all the ingredients for success are present, but, but nothing's happening. It's all there, but nothing's happening. And then a leader jumps in as a catalyst, and suddenly everybody starts coalescing. Everybody starts rallying around. In fact, let, let me step aside, because uh, Dr. von Schweinheimer had another illustration for you. Let me, doctor, doctor, can you come? Yeah, I come in here. Yeah, a moment. I have to get this silly on. It's too small for me. Dr. Zoe is so tiny. Yeah. Okay, oops, I can't do it. All right, we'll do it like this. Okay. Um, it turns out that I couldn't find my lab coat. I had to borrow from Dr. Zhou, and he is really small, so I couldn't get it on. Okay. So, you have been asked to illustrate the importance of physical reaction, right? Yeah? This is very good. So, here's what we did. I put together an experiment for you. Take a look. It's very interesting. This is fun stuff. Um, I'm going to teach you about crystallization. Can I have applause, please, for Dr. Schweinheimer? Thank you. Um, Crystalline formations. These are the formations you're going to see. So, look at the water. And what I have done, I made my favorite thing. I made candy. Yeah. Okay. And in this water, we have uh, a super solution. It is uh, a hyper solution where we have super saturated sugar. I put in color so you could see it. Wasn't that nice of me? Yeah. And so, so what is happening when we put the string in the solution? Nothing has yes changed. We just drop the string in the water. And what is happening? Tell me what you see. What do you see? Candy. Yeah, candy. Yeah, yummy. I love candy. here. Yeah. Um, the crystals. The candy is forming the crystals of sugar. The molecules are forming. They were there all the time. But when the string comes in, they have something around which to rally, and they make the rock candy. Isn't that wonderful? You can try that one at home, kids. It's very good. Okay. Now, I must go. Cheers. Bye-bye. i see you later. i go get Dr. Broderick. Yeah. Okay. One Moment. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Good to see you. You too. Okay. Um, so, what happens here? We have rock candy formed. Why? Because, because the Lord's catalyst, the, the string, was in the water. That's Nehemiah. He's the Lord's catalyst. He become, the leader becomes the string in the water. Everything was there, but once he arrives, then Judah becomes rock candy. They become something solid and sweet and wonderful before the Lord. And over the coming days, we're going to see their work crystallize, especially their physical work as they rebuild their city. But Think about the experiment, just as most of that rock candy experiment was invisible to our eyes. I mean, we couldn't see the sugar molecules at first that were all moving around until they got on there. In the same way, a whole lot of the work you're going to see over the next few days is, is going to be invisible, and yet it's critical for the walls to be coming together. People, people gave resources. They cared for the people working. They, they offered protection and encouragement, supplies of tool, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Likewise, our physical services, all of ours, come in many different forms. All are needed. None is more valuable than the others. Childcare, hospitality, giving of time, acts of kindness, words of encouragement, physical labor, giving of resources, all these help to build and strengthen the church to glorify God and lead to a furthering of the gospel. Amen. Friends, you and I can make a difference in this world. Did you know God, God has supersaturated the world around you with His Holy Spirit and with His Word? He's made a solution of life all around you. And now it's time for us to step in and, and let good things crystallize around us. Now I want you to be ready in a moment because we're each going to make some specific steps to that end. First, though, let's consider the other aspect of Judah's response. Let's look at what they did spiritually. Uh, Go back to chapter 9, okay? told you we'd bounce around. Go back to chapter 9, verse uh, 38. It's the next verse after what we read before. Chapter 9, verse 38. In view of all this, we're making a binding agreement in writing on a sealed document containing the names of our leaders, Levites, and priests, Okay, now he's then going to give the names of the people on there, but let's slide down to chapter 10, verse 28. Okay, so here's the names of the leaders, and then the rest of the people, the priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, along with their wives, sons, and daughters, everyone who's able to understand, who has separated themselves from the surrounding peoples to obey the law of God, join with their noble brothers and commit themselves with a sworn oath to follow the law of God given through God's servant Moses and to carefully obey all the commands, ordinances, and statutes of Yahweh our God. The truth is the Jews didn't merely build an incredible wall. They also built a great society within those walls. They rallied around God's Word, and they dedicated themselves spiritually. This is actually the more important part of the book of Nehemiah, although sadly it receives less attention. Remember, we are beings both physical and spiritual. We thus must respond In both physical and spiritual ways, both matter. Judah faced a wretched situation. Many of God's people do in our time as well. Nehemiah's response was to be the catalyst, to be the the string in the water for physical and spiritual change. Judah responded beautifully to this as well. What about us? Do, Do you want to change the world? You want to change the world, then respond to God spiritually. Stop looking at only the physical, only half the issue. Walk with God in obedience as He enables sweet blessings together around you. So, in review, what made the change possible for these post-exile Jews? Nehemiah did. He is the catalytic servant of God. There is no other Old Testament book except maybe possibly Jonah that so reveals the character of the human author. But unlike Jonah... What's exposed about Nehemiah is very positive. There are eight qualities the text brings out about Nehemiah, and every one of these is evidently intended for our emulation. We are supposed to grow like this. Let me walk you through these eight qualities. As we saw first, he was a person of prayer. It was his hallmark response. Do you know Nehemiah even prayed while he was in the presence of the most powerful human on the planet, the emperor of Persia? He prayed. Number two, he was trustworthy. No, no one becomes a cupbearer and we'll explain that later no one becomes a cupbearer to the Emperor of Persia unless he has first proven himself very trustworthy he was politically adroit uh, again this this is required to reach the heights of service that he did in the Empire we're going to see this capacity in his uh, speeches before artaxerxes in his initial assessment when he goes to Jerusalem on the ground we're going to especially see his his political wisdom in his management of these Conflicts that come on him in Israel. Politically, this man was very sharp. Number four, he showed great vision. Hey guys, when we get to Nehemiah, did you know the walls of Jerusalem have been in disarray for a hundred years? Mm. And in Ezra chapter four, you can read that there was an earlier attempt to rebuild them, which failed. But Nehemiah believed in God's calling, he believed in God's provision, and he saw the project through. This man was dogged, he was not going to stop he knew how to build a team Nehemiah worked at first uh, through a very small closed group and then he expanded that to finally include a very broad section of the populace he was a brilliant organizer an active organizer you know maybe the most telling aspect of his leadership is that Nehemiah worked so well with Ezra Because these two men were very, very different. Look, um, Bible scholar Edwin Yamauchi uh, has a wonderful quote on this. Look what he says. Nehemiah was able to cooperate with his contemporary Ezra in spite of the fact that these two leaders were of entirely different temperaments. Here's his example. In reaction to the problem of willful sin, Ezra plucked out his own hair, whereas Nehemiah plucked out the hair of the offenders. Brilliant. Nehemiah could build a team. He was also stalwart. His opponents tormented him. I, I love Dr. Ryrie has a really neat summary. He, he says, uh, listen to this. He was tormented with mockery, conspiracy, extortion, compromise, slander, and treachery. Close quote. And yet Nehemiah fought through it all and he triumphed. He prayed, he motivated others, and he vigilantly pressed on. He was selfless. This, this may be the most often overlooked aspect of Nehemiah's character. His other centeredness set a whole cultural tone. Nehemiah sacrificed his own entitlements as a government official. And he called out other people who refused to care for the needy. And that changed his culture. Finally, he lived to please God. This was his most important trait. It it was the characteristic that drove all the rest. His only goal, if I can borrow from 2,000 years after him, his only goal, to quote the Westminster Shorter Confession, was to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's Nehemiah. So that's how we're going to study the book. Look at that list. We're going to study the book of Nehemiah according to Nehemiah's eight character traits. God roars through Nehemiah's character. Thus, our series premise is this. Here's why we're studying this. The premise, Christians today find it difficult to do good, much less to maintain the kind of healthy character that allows for genuine impact. Nehemiah engages us in a life-changing case study where you and I can grow into similar servants. Resolute, prayerful, trustworthy, God-pleasing, and selfless. Warren Wiersbe has a great statement about this. We learn from Nehemiah the secrets of resolute leadership and successful service. You know, many people get sick of the cold and deadness of winter. Any of you feel that way? Becky from Montana, you should raise your hand. Yeah, that's right. You feel that way? Sure. I trust you know that the same kind of thing happens spiritually. There's a spiritual dormancy. It happens to every single person. We go through hard, cold seasons of life where it feels as if, it feels as if freshness and, and life will never return. That, that, that's what the Jews felt before Nehemiah. But God surprised them with revival. And the Scripture tells us the Lord desires the exact same thing for every one of us. Look at our theme. Here's our theme. This is what our study is about. God revives. That is the astonishing and encouraging message continually shared by the exilic and post-exilic prophets. That means the people like Jeremiah who spoke during the exile to Babylon and people like like Nehemiah who taught after the exile. Uh, From Ezekiel's dry bones vision to Nehemiah's walls to Haggai's temple construction, what seemed hopeless and dead is brought to life by God. He gets all the glory in this and it is an honor for humans to be used in God's restoration. Now to be useful in revival... One should follow the lead of Nehemiah and develop godly character. Close quote. God roars through Nehemiah's character, and He can through ours as well. I want you to listen as Daniel Bashta speaks um, in his poem. Daniel Bashta wrote a poem called God's Not Dead, and I swear Nehemiah could have written this. This This is Nehemiah to a T. Look what he says. Baxter wrote, let love explode and bring the dead to life. A love so bold to bring a revolution somehow. Let hope arise and make the darkness hide. My my faith is, is dead. I need a resurrection somehow. Let heaven roar and fire fall. Come shake the ground with the sound of revival. Now I am lost in your freedom." In this world, I'll overcome. My God's not dead. He's surely alive. He's living on the inside, roaring like a lion, roaring. He's roaring, roaring like a lion. Amen? Amen? And that takes us to our objective. Here's what we hope to see God accomplish in us through this study, that we use our powers for what, everybody? For good, as Nehemiah did. Nehemiah left a great legacy. legacy I want to show you a couple of testimonies from... Uh, Sources outside the Bible. Uh, Ecclesiasticus says this, The memory of Nehemiah is also lasting. He raised walls for us that had fallen and set up the gates and bars and rebuilt our ruined houses. Josephus Flavius in his wonderful book Antiquities says, Then, after performing many other splendid and praiseworthy public services, Nehemiah died at an advanced age. He was a man of kind and just nature and most anxious to serve his countrymen, and he left the walls of Jerusalem as his eternal monument. Friends, those are the kinds of things that can be and should be said about every one of us. Dave Weaver of our worship team knows what I'm talking about. I want you to look up here at this tombstone. Look up here. This is prepared for Dave's amazing godly parents. Now, thankfully, they are not dead, but their legacy is secure because they have acted justly and loved mercy and walked humbly with their God. They have done this so much so that their family has already prepared this monument for them. What will it take for your family and friends to remember you that way. Ask yourself the question in your notes. Look in your notes. What are the areas where I need to be a more engaged catalyst? What are the areas where I need to be a more engaged catalyst? Where is the saturated solution that God has gotten ready for you to jump in and provide a connection point? Where is the revival of hope needed around you? Where is godly character lacking? Where are the essentials of life missing? Is your church in need? Jump in. Is it in your neighborhood? Be a catalyst there. Is change needed in your school, in your government services, at work? You, you be the change agent. According to your own style, according to biblical character, make a difference. All God's people said? So right now, think of a place where you need to be a positive reactionary. And I highly recommend that you write it down right now. That will make it harder for you to duck the conviction later write it down right now where where do i need to be a more engaged catalyst and please don't fear don't fe- you cannot be harmed you are safe in jesus remember remember the reaction just as a catalyst itself is unaffected by the chemical process that it speeds up so you are protected in jesus christ in every way that matters eternally Remember, God likes to add catalysts to speed things up so that the world around us receives the the essentials of life that are necessary. We Christians are expected to use our catalytic powers for good to help positive things bubble up all around us. So write down one thing you can do, one place that you'll serve. And let's pray about that. Pray with me. Father, I pray for myself and I pray for my brothers and sisters for those places and those ways where we need to spiritually and physically promote positive change. I pray you'll give us the courage to be catalysts and to recognize that it isn't about us, it's about you. Father, I especially pray for... um, For all of my brethren, precious, wonderful brethren, who are quite frankly, if if I can be just utterly bare about this, they're absolute cowards right now. They're just, as my dad would say, they're being pansies. I, I they've, they've got real pains. They've, they've tried. They've tried to make change in the past, and it didn't work, uh, or at least they think it didn't. (laughs) What little can we see? Or they think they're too busy. Or they think they're not important. Lord, I beg, that, I pray this, that you will get their eyes off of themselves. That they will quit looking at how big their problems are and instead notice how big their God is. That they will recognize that even idiots like me, you use as catalysts. And if you can use me, you can use them. I pray you will change our hearts right now so that we are ready to be the string in the water, to be the catalyst in the solution. And I pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.